Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, July 16th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode four. This week, I got really motivated to talk about this particular topic because of some conversations that I've had online. As a chicken farmer, I often get people asking about hormones in chickens and their eggs, and because I'm so close to my farm and I take such great care in raising them, making sure that they eat a biodiverse and bioappropriate diet is very important to me. I really started to feel the need to investigate uh, more and, and deeper about how m- my chickens function. And so some of the questions I asked myself were, how does my chicken's endocrine system work? Is it similar to a human in any way? Um, what does the process of laying an egg a day mean for a chicken's hormonal system? And what is the chemical composition of a chicken egg? What is the impact on human health? What is the difference in the agricultural practices between my backyard farm and an industrial chicken farm? I really put my blood, sweat, and tears into raising these animals so that they have a life filled with dignity and enjoyment, and of course, so that they produce nutritious, rich food. So I feel like having a good handle on this information is really important, and now I want to share what I've learned. The endocrine system of a chicken consists of a number of organs and major glands located in different areas of the body, which play an important role in the proper functioning of the animal. The glands produce special compounds called hormones, which in turn target particular systems and organs and the way that they function. These glands are called endocrine glands because they do not have an opening to discharge their secretions, but instead discharge them directly in the bloodstream. The hormones are then carried to their target systems and organs to carry out their tasks, and in many cases, different hormones operate together to regulate a particular function. When these get out of balance, the bird's body cannot function properly, and hence their performance will suffer. In some cases, an imbalance can even lead to death. These organs include the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus, the adrenal glands, the thyroid, pineal, and gonads. And all of these serve to regulate almost every function in the chicken's body, especially concerning the best conditions for reproduction. The female reproductive system in the domestic fowl consists of the ovary and the accompanying oviduct. While the female embryo in chicken has two sets of reproductive organs, only one of these, most times the left ovary, survives and reaches maturity to produce eggs. The single surviving ovary is located in the laying hen just in front of the kidneys in the abdominal cavity and is firmly attached to the wall of the cavity. The ovary is well endowed with blood vessels to ensure that there is no hindrance to the transport of nutrients for the developing yolk. The ovary consists of a mass of yellowish rounded objects called follicles, each containing an ovum or yolk. There are many such follicles, but only a small number in comparison will ever reach maturity to produce an egg. It can carry anywhere from 2,000 to 12,000 small ova in miniature follicles on its surface, plus hormone-producing cells in its body. Not all of the ova found in the immature ovary develop, and only approximately 200 to 350 will reach maturity under normal modern commercial practices. When the hen is in lay, the ovary will be active. The size of the follicles will vary from small to those approaching the normal yolk size in the egg, which can be up to 40 millimeters in diameter, and will contain a fully matured yolk ready for release into the oviduct. A hen becomes sexually mature when she lays the first egg in her life. 
Generally, sexual maturity is genetically controlled depending on the breed. However, environmental factors play a very significant role, and it will be in the age range of 18 to 24 weeks depending on the fowl genotype, but it can be manipulated by controlled feeding practices, light intensity, and day length management, and some other management practices. It takes approximately 10 days for a yolk to develop from very small to the normal size found in an egg, and during this time it is contained in the follicle. The follicle acts as a sac during this period of development, supplying it with the nutrients required for its growth. The function of the oviduct is to produce the albumin, the shell membranes, and the shell around the yolk to complete the egg. It is a long tube well supplied with blood via numerous blood vessels, and there are many glands found in its walls that produce the albumin, the shell membranes, and the shell. In addition to the production of eggs, the female reproductive system also produces hormones that aid in the control of body functions. These include androgen, estrogen, and progesterone. Androgen causes comb growth and condition, that's the uh, red part that you see on the top of a chicken's head, and it has a function in the formation of albumin as well. Estrogen causes the growth of the female plumage, it controls mating and nesting behavior, oviduct development, and supplies nutrients to the ovary for egg formation. Progesterone with androgen is involved in the production of albumin and the carriage of the message to the pituitary gland to release luteinizing hormone. The female reproductive system remains dormant in the young chicken and growing pullet, which is another term for a teenage chicken, until she reaches the age when these organs start to prepare for the normal production of eggs. Yolk developing in the maturing pullet is initiated by the follicle-stimulating hormone produced by the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland. The compounds in the yolk material are formed in the liver and on the appropriate signal are transported by the bloodstream to the target follicle and into the yolk. The appropriate signal for this development comes from the hormones estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, which are produced by the ovary after receiving the signal from the FSH. These ovarian hormones also provide the stimulus for the formation of the development of the oviduct. Subsequent ovulations are controlled largely by the time of the previous egg passing through the vent, in other words, being laid. Subsequent yolk release, if at all, occurs approximately 40 to 60 minutes after the previous egg has been laid. The time taken from ovulation until when the egg passes through the vent varies with individual chickens, but usually takes between 23 and 26 hours. The other components of the egg are the albumin, the shell membranes, and the shell, and they're produced by different segments of the tube-like organ called the oviduct. Upon ovulation, the yolk is released and enters the oviduct, where it passes along the infundibulum organ, and this takes about approximately 15 minutes. Fertilization occurs during this time if there is sperm inside of this organ, um, and the remaining parts of the egg are added around it. The majority of what is going to be added now is the albumin, and this begins in the segment of the oviduct called the magnum. Its function is to add approximately 40% of the albumin to the developing egg, and that takes around three hours to move through. The innermost layer surrounds the yolk and keeps it in place, which is essential for embryonic development. And then a liquid albumin layer is added around that, and that's the composition of your egg white. As the egg continues on its journey, it'll enter the isthmus, part of the oviduct, and this functions to add approximately 20% of the albumin and also the shell membranes to the egg. 
and there are two shell membranes, an inner shell membrane, which is laid down first, and then the outer shell membrane, which is laid down last and is about three times the thickness of the inner membrane. And if you ever look inside of a chicken egg and you see that air pocket at the top, that's also created by this organ. Following that, the egg continues on and enters the uterus, which is a relatively short bulbous gland. It's about 12 centimeters in length. The developing egg remains in the uterus for another 18 to 20 hours, while approximately 40% of the albumin and the rest of the shell is added. An eggshell is formed in two layers. The mammillary layer, which is a sponge-like layer composed of soft calcite crystals, and the palisade layer, which is formed of columns of hard calcite crystals. The longer the columns, the stronger the shell. This layer is the outer shell of the egg. The calcium for the eggshell comes from the diet, a special bone called the medullary bone found in the cavity of long bones and in the skeleton. The hen uses approximately 2.5 grams of calcium in the formation of one normal egg. She cannot absorb sufficient calcium from her diet each day, approximately 2 grams per day, to supply this need, and hence it becomes necessary for her to utilize her own skeletal calcium to make up for the shortfall. This is particularly so at night when most of the shell is being formed, but the hen is unlikely to be eating. The egg is held in the cloaca immediately prior to being laid. So basically there's a, an asshole, and um, the egg usually enters this organ small end first, but usually rotates so that the large end um, exits first. So that is basically the process of ovulation all the way to egg laying in a chicken. And a bird's reproductive system permits early separation of the hen from her offspring, which permits the hen to fly and reproduce at the same time. Pretty cool part, evolutionarily, of being an egg layer. And the formation of an egg is a very complex activity during which a lot of different things can go wrong. So the quality of the final product, the egg as it is laid, is influenced by both genetic and management factors. A working knowledge of the fowl's reproductive system and the formation of the egg assists a farmer to maximize egg production and quality. So now that we understand the reproductive process of a chicken, how do we know what the result of this process is? What is the composition of an egg? So I did some research and the composition of a yolk is as follows. 48% water, 17.5% protein, 32.5% fat, 1% carbohydrates, and 1% other compounds. The yolk is laid down in concentric rings of darker and lighter colored material, and the color is produced by xanthophylls, which are light uh, yellow, orange, or red pigments occurring in many plants, plant products, and other naturally occurring materials. When you see leaves that get that bright yellow color before they die off in the fall, those are also produced by xanthophylls, so it's very interesting to me that the plants and the animals are producing the same um, pigment, basically. And obviously the bulk of the yolk's purpose is to provide a source of food for the developing embryo, and as I've raised chickens myself and I've seen them hatch, it's a pretty amazing process to go from yolk to a whole, there's a whole chicken in there. Um, that's definitely like one of the joys of chicken farming for me. So that's a component of the yolk. And then we have the egg white composition, which is 88% water, 11% protein, 0.2% fat, and 0.8% mineral. So really, an egg white is mostly water and protein. Um, and as you can see from this breakdown, 
there isn't a significant amount of hormones in this breakdown. Um, I believe that it would be only found in the yolk and also considered, in this case, what they call other compounds. So we're talking about naturally derived hormones in the egg that are less than one, comprising less than 1% of it. So continuing to do more research, I found that, you know, hormone data is very limited in chickens because they don't receive any growth hormone supplements. Um, so unlike the beef cattle industry, there's no synthetic hormone levels to actually test because there are none applied. However, as mentioned previously, there are naturally occurring levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in chickens and other animals as well. A study that was released in 2010 reported estrogen levels in U.S. and Japanese chicken fat samples. Uh, data for chicken fat were reported because the estrogen levels were generally higher in fat than in meat, if you're wondering. Here's what that study compared. Um, we're talking about nanograms here, by the way. So an adult woman has 480,000 nanograms of estrogen. An adult man has 136,000 nanograms of estrogen. A pregnant woman has 3,415,000 nanograms of estrogen in their body. Three ounces of soybean oil has 168,000 nanograms of estrogen. One cup of soy milk has 30,000 nanograms of estrogen. A three-ounce egg has 2,625 nanograms of estrogen. And a three-ounce piece of chicken fat has 1.8 nanograms of estrogen, and they studied both Japanese poultry and American poultry for this study. So as you can see in a comparative way, the amount of estrogen produced is just extremely, extremely low. Um, and those are produced naturally by the animal by way of the object being an egg. So let's talk about the no hormones added label on conventional chickens for a second. So no chicken, no matter what, condition, factory farm, um, or backyard race is completely hormone-free because, as I've just described in very verbose way, chickens naturally produce these growth hormones and they're essential to the reproduction of the species um, and most species. Uh, hormones are necessary for normal development, growth, and reproduction, and we know this. So another label that's very misleading on poultry is no hormones added. Additive hormones are banned by the FDA and have been for the past 50 years. And before that, the logistics of creating growth hormones failed due to issues with administering them to so many birds and also because they didn't seem to find too many results in their use of hormones. It actually wasn't working out too well. So growth hormones are not added to the chicken we eat, um, one, because they're illegal and too, because uh, it just didn't work for the industry. So when you see no hormones added, just realize that that label applies to any chicken eaten in the United States because it is the law, um, and it's not it's not a normal practice. So if you ever hear somebody talking about how they inject chickens with growth hormones, that's inaccurate, and I'll explain a little bit later on why. So. 
I also found a, another interesting study that took place in Germany. So these are both international studies, which is interesting. And this study did conclude that eggs have a considerable source of hormonally active steroids in their precursors. They found things like pregnenolone, uh, which is a basic precursor to a lot of these steroid hormones. They also found progesterone, and they were not surprised by this because, as expected, eggs are produced directly in the hen's ovaries, and the ovaries are a hormone-synthesizing gland um, as they're part of the reproductive process. So they did find some estrogenic female hormones like estradiol and estrone. But what really caught me about this study was their conclusion. At the end, they noted that around 70% of Germans surveyed considered hormones a very high risk in meat and poultry and dairy. So in contrast to the consumers, the scientists considered the occurrence and use of uh, eating natural hormones safe. Um, and they also noted that these values are far exceeded by human steroid production. So children who showed the lowest production of steroid hormones produce about 20 times the amount of progesterone and about 1,000 times the amount of testosterone and estrogens that are ingested with food on average per day. It has further to be taken into consideration that about 90% of the ingested hormones are inactivated by the first pass effect through the liver. This leads to the conclusion that no hormonal effects and as a consequence no tumor promoting effects can be expected from naturally occurring steroid hormones in food. More effects on human beings can be expected from exposure to phytoestrogens, which occur in plants in high amounts or by environmental chemicals with hormonal or hormonal blocking activity, such as some pesticides polychlorinated by phenols or dioxins, which are widespread in food and water. So this really got me thinking because I was just so interested in them actually studying poultry and the the data associated with it and then their conclusion basically said the levels are so low that you're more likely to have bad estrogenic effects from industri industrial chemicals basically and it did mention phytoestrogens so then I was like well what is going on with phytoestrogens because I am a little bit familiar um, but are they also in eggs was the question, and it turns out that, yes, uh, eggs also contain some phytoestrogens, and relatively speaking, they're more so in the yolk than in the white, and of course, these amounts are teeny tiny compared to foods with actual significant levels of phytoestrogens like soy. Soy has about 600 times the amount per 100 grams uh, than, it, than a chicken egg does. So the reason for this is because chickens eat plants and vegetable matter, and so depending on what they're eating, some of those phytoestrogens actually come from, from the plants and enter their body and are processed through their body that way. So eggs, cheese, and milk-derived products do have some mammalian phytoestrogens, which are produced by bacteria in the gut that metabolize that plant matter as well. Phytoestrogens cannot be considered nutrients because a lack of them doesn't actually produce any deficiencies, um, and they aren't essential to biological functions. But there's definitely seems to be in plant medicine and 
a use for them naturally. Um, and they're considered an ancient naturally occurring substance and that they've co-evolved with us as mammals. So in the human diet, they're uh, definitely not the only source of outside estrogens. And I think the real issue that we should turn ourselves towards is not the animal-derived estrogens and not the plant-derived estrogens, but the xenoestrogens, meaning the man-made estrogens, the additives, um, ingredients that are in things like cosmetics, plastics, and insecticides. And um, in the environment, they are going to have similar effects as phytoestrogens. So that's, I guess, where a lot of the research gets convoluted because scientists are having a tough time distinguishing when these are naturally based issues versus when they are uh, xenoestrogen based issues. But in my skeptical fashion, I'm more likely to believe that the xenoestrogens are really what is harming us um, on a widespread scale. And definitely when it comes to farming, I'm specifically, my compost is working to try to eliminate some of these toxins like PCBs and dioxins. And it goes to show me personally that, you know, those things also are harmful to human health and they're harmful to my poultry's health as well. So I don't want them anywhere near my my plants, my animals, or my food. Another thing to note about synthetic xenoestrogens is that they differ chemically from any estrogenic substances produced internally by the endocrine system of any organism. So things like dioxins, PCBs, BPA, DDT, these are chemically different from phytoestrogens and animal-based steroid estrogens, which are the same estrogens that we have in our bodies. In this sense, birth control pills are not made of estrogen, but they are actually a xenoestrogen. So when you think you're taking estrogen, you're actually taking ethanol estradiol, um, which looks chemically the same, but is different. All of these chemicals have the potential to have an impact on human health, and at the end of the day, it's up to you to determine what this information means and how it best impacts your health. And my experience with naturopathy has taught me that people really are different and their bodies are different, and we have to respect it as such and understand it as such. But really, my conclusion here remains that First off, animals eat phytoestrogens, and secondly, that both phytoestrogens and animal-based estrogens are a lot less harmful to us than all of these industrial xenoestrogens that are in our environment. And the substances that are made from animals and plants are in a form that our bodies are able to receive the possible benefits of these things. Um, from these nutrients and compounds, and I definitely think that's true with plant medicine, and the more I'm learning about the uh, really powerful effects of the nutrients in the animal, specifically in things like the liver and the brain, um, these things are really rich in nutrients and minerals that can be really positive things for us. So I definitely wanted to talk about hormones in a way that really respects what the hormones are and what they do and to not treat them like we treat most synthetic hormones and the way we 
talk about chemicals and toxins, it is always with a very negative connotation, but um, in my own fertility and in the fertility of my animals, I definitely think it's useful to understand what the hormonal process is and to understand it not in a way that you know just harms us and uh, to really get into the nitty-gritty of that. So um, when it comes to how it impacts our health, I definitely feel like this really solidified some of my my leanings uh, towards the way that I feel about plant and animal agriculture and permaculture, which is really a system of um, having a lot of respect for the ecosystem and trying to model the ecosystem as one full, beautiful system on Earth. And with that said, there really is a distinction that needs to be made about commercial chickens today because they are very different from the chickens that were eaten 100 years ago, and the key word has to do with their commercial production because industry changed our relationship to chickens. And as a chicken farmer and breeder, I'd really like to talk about some of the major differences in production in eggs and meat and why that, of course, affects the quality of the nutrition. You may remember a viral video from a few months back that was of this huge rooster and it was just absolutely massive coming out of a chicken coop. And it was the Brahma chicken, it was the Brahma rooster that you were looking at. And the Brahma was the principal meat bird in the United States from the 1850s until about 1930. Um, and the reason for that is because of their size. I have one Brahma hen in my backyard, and she is definitely one of the larger of the flock, but uh, very docile in a way. Um, and the Brahmas originate from China, but they already had made their way to England by the 1850s and, and thus made their way to the United States and became the principal meat bird here, what we would call a broiler bird. But as, of course, industry changed the way that we related to chickens because we industrialized the farming process, the breed of chicken that was used changed. And the reason for that was because the environment that they were raising the chickens in was different. They were raising them in indoor houses in cramped conditions. So they needed to create a breed that could develop faster, um, that could be culled faster, and also that could withstand these conditions. So that breed is actually called the Cornish Cross, which is what you'll find when you buy chicken meat in most United States supermarkets. And that comes from a white Cornish hen uh, breeding with a white Plymouth Rock. And the crosses were bred and confined and bred and confined in a process of inbreeding. So they do suffer from many skeletal and heart problems due to the fact that they grow extremely fast. Most of them are culled within 35 days, which is just, as someone who raises chickens, it's pretty wild to me. My chicken just wouldn't be very much meat at 35 days. Uh, so... The fact that their breasts can develop as big as they do. Think about a chicken that you buy in the store. I mean, they're huge. So the reason for that is not because of hormone injections. It's actually because of a long process of inbreeding uh, during the industrialization of chicken farming. So I raise chickens from a few different breeds, and some of them are more egg-laying based, and some of them are more broiler based, but... 
really what I'm interested in is the diversity and making sure that we keep these diverse bloodlines going for for chickens. And I definitely think that the flavor and the nutrition in a heritage breed bird is better than uh, this long process of inbreeding um, just from my own biases, I think that there is something to be said about uh, the health of those chickens and the lifestyle that they live is just not very good So, um, in these indoor facilities and whatnot. So I, the first agricultural process that I would say differs from somebody who raises chickens themselves versus an industrial farm is in the breed. And the second is in the food. So chickens are omnivores, and one of the other things that you might see on some uh, chicken poultry labeling is that it may say something like vegetarian fed, which is a good way of saying malnourished because the chicken is an omnivore and it actually really does need all that protein. Think about the composition of an egg. There's a lot of protein in there and they need to to get some of that and most of it should come from bugs that they are foraging for all day. So I definitely think that being fed a grain diet, which is most of the uh, most of the chicken feed in industrial practices is mainly based off soy and corn. So again, soy is where you see that phytoestrogen there may be an overconsumption of phytoestrogens in industrial raised birds because they're mainly fed soy, which already has a high content, and then some of that may be held in, in the chicken and passed through the chicken. So that's definitely something to think about as well. I definitely focus on trying to give them as little grain as possible and really making the bulk of their diet plant and vegetable matter and and protein, specifically bug-based protein. They should be foraging all day long and uncovering things and looking for worms and all of that should be a part of a chicken's life. So when they don't get that experience because they live in an indoor facility and they're being fed soy pellets, I definitely think that there's a difference in the nutrition and probably also the flavor as well. And the last differing agricultural practice that I want to talk about is the concern of medication. So ionophores and vaccinations versus the use of probiotics and apple cider vinegar. Um, a lot of check marks that these poultry companies are putting on their poultry labels say the words no antibiotics ever. And if we break that down, antibiotics are a type of antimicrobial. There's also antifungals and antibacterials. But antibiotics primarily inhibit the reproduction of cells, antibio. Um, Purdue and Tyson, for example, they claim that they don't use antibiotics. But what they really mean is human-grade antibiotics because they still use antimicrobials. Um, those are called ionophores, and they're classified as antibiotics, but they skirt around the label because the drugs are never used to treat human beings. And their primary purpose is used as an antiparasitic to ward off coccidiosis, which is a disease that will kill an entire flock. Um, and it's something that, as an organic chicken farmer, I have to work extremely hard to manage because if coccidiosis starts to spread well, then my chickens are dying every three to five days, and it's pretty 
you know, it's happened before and it's not fun. Um, so the, the reason why is, again, they have these birds in these really tight industrial facilities, whether they're in cages or not, they're still indoors and they're shitting everywhere. And it's, um, definitely going to be a breeding ground for coccidiosis just because coccidiosis thrives in wet environments. So the ionophores are in the litter and they're also in the food that the chickens are consuming. And the chicken industry actually had to sue the USDA just to keep the labeling, um, but they managed to win that fight. And Again, the feed still has to be medicated because these chickens couldn't survive under commercial conditions. They don't do well with crowding or indoors. I can tell you that as a small farmer. Uh, so I can see why chickens who are susceptible to respiratory and intestinal diseases would have a real problem when you go and exacerbate those conditions. You know, they would die very quickly. So these companies are actually moving towards using a coccidiosis vaccine to control the industrial-related issues. But I think addressing the system of production, again, is really important here. My solution when my chickens have gotten sick with coccidiosis has, from long periods of rain and whatnot, has been use of probiotics, so actually having them eat yogurt and drink apple cider vinegar in their water to help flush out their system and the use of probiotics instead of the use of antibiotics to deal with something that naturally exists in the chicken's body um, and just has to be maintained at the proper level uh, with you know the lack of overcrowding and all of that, you really can do a pretty good job managing it organically. So I definitely think between the breeds, the food, and the use of medication, and of course in the environment that these birds are raised in, that there's definitely, you're, when you're talking about chicken, you're really talking about two different substances when you're talking about something that's commercially raised or something that's raised on a small sustainable farm. So always, you know, trying to push that angle for people to explain that food is not just food. Food is totally about how it's made. And in regards to chicken and hormones, I think that if you're really working to raise your birds with integrity, you're going to end up with a product that is nutritionally sound and very, very safe to eat. I just covered a lot of information, so I don't blame you if it takes a while for all of that to soak in. But I hope that you were able to learn something about chicken reproduction and chicken hormones today. And I hope to do more of these sort of investigations that arise through my conversations with people because I really like when people challenge me, even in the moment if I don't like it. I really do like the fact that it motivates something in me to try to understand more and to try to look deeper into the things that I'm doing. So I definitely learned a lot from researching and I'm really happy to share this one with you. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone who would appreciate it. This concludes episode four of the Someone Somewhere podcast. We'll see you next week.